0: Welcome to How to Win Friends and Influenza, a medical podcast interviewing doctors across a wide range of specialties. My name's Lily and I'm your host. Today we're talking about a very exciting specialty that consists of a three letter acronym as its name. And if you're thinking ICU, that's a red herring. Today we're talking about the very interesting and very amazing ENT. And I've got Dr. Fruk with me to tell us all about this specialty. Welcome.
1: Thank you, Lily. Thanks for having me on your show.
0: Yeah, and we're really excited to hear your perspective on it. Can I ask what got you into ENT in the first place?
1: Well, Lily, first I'll correct you that the specialty is not called ENT (gasps) anymore. Um, It certainly used to be called ENT for a long period of time. Uh, That's more at a time when the specialty was actually restricted to purely ear, nose and throat. Um, The college has actually officially changed the name to otolaryngology head and neck surgery. Otolaryngology or otorhinolaryngology is obviously Latin for ENT. Um, and head and neck surgery is a component of the specialty that was always there but uh, it used to be done by both otolaryngologists and general surgeons and over time due to various reasons changes in the, in the training changes in experience um, ENT or otolaryngology um, trained surgeons have taken it on and our specialty is officially called oh or otolaryngology head and neck surgery so um, Your question was why I chose it Um, and I think look I can give you a a personal perspective but I think from a student's point of view uh, I'll give you a a broader perspective into what the the specialty entails, um, what I think its advantages are including uh, some of the exciting things which which have happened in the specialty I think. First of all I think um, we are unique in that together with ophthalmologists we are probably the only two specialties in the whole realm of medicine where we are both the physicians as well as the surgeons of our body parts or part. Um, we happen to be a regional doctor, um, so so in the head and neck region um, there is, you know, in orthopedics, you have a complementary specialty. I'll call them complementary rather than rival specialties because I don't think we should be rivals. Um, So you've got orthopedics and rheumatology, you've got cardiology and cardiothoracic surgery, you've got neurology and neurosurgery, but in otolaryngology you've just got us. Um, And if you come, if you have the opportunity to come to an ENT or an otolaryngology clinic at some point in your medical clinics, you'll find that we treat a whole spectrum of, of problems a lot of which do not need um, surgical management. Um, They they purely need medical management of various sorts. Um, And uh, so so that's the one nice thing I think in in that you really become a regional expert um, of your field. Looking into each arm, uh, if you divide our specialty into the medical arm and the surgical arm, our medical arm focuses a lot on the treatment of allergies, on the treatment of, uh, if you just look into, into the development in, in the treatment of chronic rhinosinusitis, uh, allergic rhinitis and some of the, the breakthroughs that have happened in the immunological workup, in the immunotherapy, uh, into the broader basic science or the, or the interaction between the basic science and the clinical science part of our specialty. That's been very dramatic, at least in the, in the last few years, um, with monoclonal antibodies now being available, uh, admittedly for restricted indications, but certainly it, it's one of these areas where you want to watch the space in terms of the developments that are happening, uh, because it may alleviate or help us optimize a lot of the surgical managements that we do now. In the surgical side, again, You'd be hard-pressed to find any other specialty, in, in its true sense, and you can verify my statement. But there is probably no other surgical specialty which combines the ability to do endoscopic surgery, open surgery, microscopic surgery and robotic surgery now. Open surgery for head and neck cancers, you know, we do laryngectomies, we do neck dissections. Now these are not done, by what, what we need to understand is this is the spectrum of the specialty. Doesn't mean every practitioner in the specialty is going to be doing this in real life. But it's what you can do. Um, and, and certainly what in your training in the years of five or six or seven years as a registrar, what you'd be experiencing and going through in most of our departments. Uh, you know in the department I work in we have nine consultants who have subspecialty interests in each of these regions and I happen to be a, a head and neck cancer surgeon, I also happen to do laryngology, voice work, work with swallowing disorders and so on but but broadly speaking you know coming back to the point of, of open surgery we do uh, head and neck cancer work, uh, You know, endoscopic surgery virtually most rhinology or diseases of the nose and sinuses uh, are performed endoscopically and including very advanced endoscopic surgery and and again over time we've had great interactions with sister or, or complementary specialties so for example in the management of pituitary tumours now they are virtually done all endoscopically through the nose with neurosurgeons working very closely with us you know we manage CSF leaks through the nose endoscopically so great advances in endoscopic surgery resection of cancers are done endoscopically now, Uh, robotic surgery has really come around in a big way and and I am trained and performed robotic surgery myself Um, but but that's another thing that's really expanded the scope of the specialty. Microscopic surgery is actually how it all started, ENT or otolaryngology was defined by ear surgery, that was the first real area that the specialty advanced in and the others the other parts kind of caught up you know, whether you're looking at cochlear implants, even relatively simpler procedures like grafting a hole in the eardrum, treatment of hearing loss, pediatric hearing loss, uh, you know, cochlear implantation, treatment of middle ear and and inner ear tumours, like acoustic neuromas which are dealt with by ENT and neurosurgeons together. Um, And so I think, you know, you've got advanced microscopic skills, endoscopic skills, open skills, robotic skills you know, you name it, the specialty's probably got something that would suit your interest.
0: Right, and I'm just going to stop you there because I have to express to our listeners how much my mind is blown. I think we've learned some very interesting trivia facts there, so take that to your next pub trivia team. So firstly, we know the real name of ENT. We know that it's a combination of medical and surgical aspects, which is really exciting. And thirdly, we've just found out all these cool instruments and this amazing technology that's really helping the specialty. Did you know all of this before you got into it or did something else appeal to you?
1: No, look, um, some of these developments and the specialties um, in the specialties occurred in the course of my career um, or, or during the course of my training and, and the early parts of my career. Certainly when I was a trainee, robotic surgery wasn't around. Um, endoscopic surgery was around, microscopic surgery was around but the robots weren't available and they were still in in clinical trials. Um, What attracted me to the specialty? Like any other person, you know, if you follow people who get attracted to particular specialties, there are innate attractions. You know, some some people may come from a family background which uh, have a certain tradition of them doing a certain branch of medicine and medicine is one of the specialties which is like that. but uh, there are certain things that make you gravitate and that's a combination of, of the of your personality with the specialty. And I think ENT uh you know, I think what I like about ENT is that most operations are planned. They are performed in a very cognizant manner. Um, uh, there's very little rushed operating or haphazard uh, work and of course you know sometimes we are asked to deal with acute upper airway obstruction, and assist or, or or help our anaesthetic colleagues in stabilising an airway. That's a different scenario, but by and large, the elective work is is quite cognitive, um, um, and uh, a lot of the diseases we deal with are complex and require a certain amount of planning, and that always appeal to me. But even on a personal level, when you deal with. Uh, people from different specialties in the course of your career as a medical student you'll find uh, that ENT or otolaryngology surgeons are very pleasant personalities in general. (laughs) They're they're happy surgeons, they're what you call happy surgeons. There are very few of them who are disgruntled, who are unhappy, who are rude, uh, who are you know uh, obnoxious which are different things that might turn people off certain specialties Mm -hmm. Um, if you walk through the operating theatres and, and speak to some of our senior nursing staff or some of our nursing staff our uh, operation assistants, you'll find that the interaction with ENT surgeons are generally very jovial. And
0: what's the reason for that? Is it because the self-selection of very positive people into it or is it something about messing with people's airways makes people really happy?
1: Well I think, I think it's a combination of factors. You know I think I think um, uh, people uh, are attracted I was attracted to the specialty because my personality happens to be of that type mm-hmm. myself. Um, I think I'm fairly easygoing. We know when to be serious. We know when to be easygoing. We are we are generally pleasant in our interactions with people. And my mentors, who through whom I was attracted to into this specialty, were very similar. So I think there's a lot of that gravitation that that occurs by learning from example. Um, but I also feel that. The, the operations we do are very satisfying. Restoration of a sense, for example, you know, when you do a cochlear implant and you make the deaf person hear, these are very innately satisfying operations. Admittedly, my end of ENT, uh, which deals with head and neck cancer work and so on, sometimes can have bad outcomes. Uh, we deal with some diabolical diseases, but still, I think overall, uh, our work is pleasant, our, our, li- our hours are controlled or controllable uh, compared to a lot of our other surgical colleagues um, and certainly we're able to plan a lot of life around work which can be difficult once, once you mature in a career um, but I think given that that's
0: still possible it just helps us
1: maintain that, that pleasantry at work.
0: Yeah, and that's really important and it's so correct that it's going to be a mixture of a couple of things. You need really good people who make you happy and you don't really want to strangle or anything like that and you need work that makes you feel happy as well as a lifestyle. So it makes sense that it's all of those because if you're attracted to a specialty just because of really nice people, if the work is really awful as a fit for you, you might find that you'll be unhappy anyway. So. All of those well, I don't though. think you could sustain it that's correct yeah. I don't
1: think I don't think you know you have to understand that the medical career if you choose to pursue medicine and a, and a clinical medicine career it's a marathon mm. and to sustain in a marathon you need a combination of factors you need an innate interest in the specialty the specialty's got to be rewarding for you in some way more than purely material because that's not going to last um and and uh you know, it's the, it's the interaction, it's the non-cognitive aspects of the specialty that are important, the collegiality. You need these things to sustain you through because you have to understand that, you know, the process of training and getting out is about 10 years, maybe slightly more, slightly less, but let's say it's about 10, subsequent to which you may have another 25 to 35 years in the career. That's a long time. Um, and so you can't sustain on it on one
0: singular fact.
1: Um, it needs to be a combination of factors. yeah, that's
0: a long long time to be unhappy if you're going to be unhappy. So you might as well try and do something that you know makes you happy, gives you meaning.
1: And I think if yeah. you're unhappy, it rubs off to your pa- uh, to your mm-hmm. patients. Um yeah. I think you know unhappy doctors have unhappy patients. Uh, I'm sure that uh, there's probably evidence out there that shows that it generates a greater number of complaints, mm-hmm. uh, a greater number of medical legal lawsuits. Uh, uh, and I think you know at the end of the day, people are coming to you, asking for assistance. No one comes to a doctor because they're well. Um, You're dealing with them at a time when they're vulnerable. So if you're an unhappy, uh, disgruntled type of individual, I think it just makes the interaction much more difficult.
0: Yeah, and speaking of patients and um, the work that we're doing for them, now in this specialty you mentioned that it's more of a planned nature often elective. Does that mean that your success rate, or your cure rate, if you like to call it that, is higher than other specialties or other conditions so complex that it kind of balances out
1: well I think that's that's where you know um, for example if we again divide out the specialty in into ear nose throat for argument's sake uh, head throat being including some of the cancer work that we do and pediatrics which is a big component of our work um, in ear and nasal diseases a lot of the diseases are life-threatening and I think to the practitioners who specialize in in those, that's one of the most satisfying things. You know, a restoration of sense, restoration of hearing, being able to smell again in a patient with nasal polyps who hasn't smelt, tasted food for years. Mm. It's a different type of disease. People can live on, admittedly, in a lot, lot of parts of the world, they probably do live on for years and years with these conditions. Um, and, so, and so that's what makes it slightly more planned. Now in the throat part of it, at least in the malignant part of it, it's planned. Um, uh, but sometimes the outcomes are fantastic um, and you get great functional outcome, great oncological outcome. Sometimes the diseases can be quite debilitating and the treatments sometimes are worse than the disease itself. In order to achieve a cure you may leave them with a permanent tracheostomy tube, you may leave them being unable to swallow properly, being permanently peg fed. So, So I think that part of the specialty deals with more life-threatening diseases like any other oncology related specialty Um, but overall most ENT surgeons at least in Australia will maintain a subspecialty interest but still practice an amount and that can vary but an amount of general ENT work which includes paediatric work which includes the general work especially in the private sector.
0: Okay, and do you tend to see the same patient multiple times or is it see them once, do a procedure for them and they're sort of done with ENT? For so
1: look, I think again, that depends on, on, on what the underlying disease is. So it's, it's um, in, again, if you dealt with, dealt with head and neck cancers, then you'd be seeing them for a long, long time, right. very, very frequently and you'd be troubleshooting and, and you'd be monitoring them for surveillance if they've survived the initial part of the treatment. Um, uh, and that includes uh, the other parts as well on the other hand you have lots of parts of ENT which deal with what we would call episodic care you know when someone presents with recurrent nosebleeds and let me tell you it might sound like a minor problem but for the for the average person that is a a very scary thing you know um, because they've never bled in their life suddenly they have this big bleed out of the nose. They might be at school, they might be at work, it's socially embarrassing, it's perceived to be life threatening, um, and yet sometimes it needs nothing more than cauterization of a vessel in the nose. So that's an episodic care. Someone's had an acute problem, you've dealt with it, you may never see them again. And that also uh, holds, uh, holds true for things like, you know, simple things like tonsillitis and, and tonsillar disease or, or sleep apnea in children, which can be caused by big tonsils and big adenoids, where you've diagnose the problem, perform the surgery, they've had a great outcome, hopefully, and you'd never see them again. Um, so yeah, that that's, um, I think whether or not you have an ongoing interaction or, or whether or not you have an episodic interaction depends on the disease. We're certainly not like psychiatry. We don't, you know, a vast majority of our patients don't need to be seen after that initial consultation, but a certain percentage do.
0: Okay, and I imagine there's a lot of overlap with GP and basically every specialty because GP is the primary care physician, the first person that a lot of people will see. So what sort of ENT presentations would a GP see and at what point would they refer onwards?
1: Well that's a very interesting question because you know um, most studies have shown that up to 30% so one in three, approximately one in three presentations in general practice have got uh, related to an ailment in the ear, nose or throat or in the upper respiratory tract somehow. Now, admittedly, a lot of these are self-limited viral infections. They include the common cold, rhinovirus, you know, uh, common cough, qatar, uh, flare-ups of rhinitis. But these are common. Um, uh, Otitis media in children. These are what an average GP, if you speak to a GP, you know, one in three presentations are are related to this. Now, naturally, a lot of these are self-limited illnesses or can be treated well in primary care because if one in three continued to be referred to us, we would be inundated. We would need 10 times the number of ENT surgeons that we have now in order to cope. Um, so I think, you know, it's, it's hard for me to answer when a GP should refer on, because ultimately it depends on what the presenting complaint to, to uh, the GP is. But I think like any, other, like any other specialty, there are certain red flag symptoms um, that a GP should look for. Uh, and be aware of and thankfully most of our GP community is uh, you know whether it's uh, through attending CPD courses and so on but you know for example a hoarse voice in a smoker uh, a non-healing ulcer in the mouth or throat which could be malignant nodule in the thyroid gland which could be a cancer um, acute hearing loss in a patient who was previously normal, that's a medical emergency um, you know epistaxis, recurrent nosebleeds um, you know, severe sleep apnea in children. And I think I could give you a whole spectrum in each in each part of our specialty where GPs often would refer on. But I think, you know, a fundamental guiding principle of referrals include red flag symptoms or symptoms that may not be red flag but are not responding to conventional medical therapy. So tonsillitis is not a red flag symptom. And yet a recurrent presentation to a general practice with tonsillitis needing antibiotics multiple times is an indication of a tonsillectomy. So, so I think you know, conditions that are not responding to conventional uh, management options
0: or, or the red flag symptoms. Yeah, and that makes a lot of sense. It's also a tricky because some of these symptoms are very nonspecific and can occur in any context. For example, the cold, that's, that's very common, can occur to a lot of people. Or the hoarse voice, you could go, out to a concert and yell all night and then the next day you'll have a horse voice and And
1: that's called an acute vocal cord hemorrhage right Um, so that's very very common used to be called monday laryngitis (laughs) Um, you know commonly diagnosed uh, following an acute sports event or a rock concert or something that you've attended and presenting with a painful raspy voice on a monday Um, and that's an acute vocal cord hemorrhage and absolutely right that's a self-limited condition it will tend to heal by itself and unless you're a concert singer, it's of very little relevance.
0: Yeah, and so that's the art in it, that you could have a very benign symptom or it could be something terrible, whereas some specialties, you know, if you get this symptom, it's probably always terrible. If you have, um, let's say, fatty stools or something like that, maybe that's always going to be a bit of a warning sign. Yes, I
1: think so. I think think that's right. A lot of presentations can be vague, and I think, you know, every cold could represent a nasopharyngeal carcinoma. Yes, Mm -hmm. that is true, but that is highly unlikely. Um, And and thankfully, with the amount of investigation modalities available nowadays, they include the easy availability of CT scans and MRIs um, for investigations, you know, you can always uh, refer on to an ENT clinic if you think there's an acute concern, but but I think, you know, um, uh, most conditions are appropriately referred on.
0: Excellent. Excellent. So we've talked about some of the exciting parts of the specialty and also some of the good parts. So let's get into the more difficult bits. What do you think is maybe the hardest aspect of your job?
1: Um, in my job as I practice it today, um, I think, look, um, the a lot of the diseases, uh, like I said, in my part of the specialty, which is head and neck oncology, um, the hardest parts are that sometimes the treatment can be worse than the disease mm-hmm. um, in order to achieve a cure. There are significant functional outcomes that restrict a patient's um, Activities, uh, for example, you know, even a tracheostomy tube, which is a breathing tube that's put directly into the trachea, can restrict a patient's uh, activities and their social interactions um, quite, uh, quite significantly. And, and I think these things are difficult, you know, breaking bad news to a patient. Oh, you know, I saw a patient today who was um, uh, an editor of a very famous newspaper um, who happens to present with a non-healing ulcer at the back of the tongue um, and then the junction of the tonsil and the tongue and he was treated for acute tonsillitis, going back to what you were talking about earlier, he was treated for acute tonsillitis for the last four months and his tonsillitis wasn't getting better and now he's got a big lymph node in the neck which clearly is metastatic carcinoma Um, You know, when you look into anything in life with hindsight, things seem easier. You do wonder, well, tonsillitis is really a bilateral illness and yet this patient has a unilateral sore throat. Perhaps it should have triggered earlier, but that's that's exactly what happens in, in, in practical life. That, you know, common things are common and hence get treated as that. Um, thankfully he's still curable. He is going to need extensive uh, combination again of surgical and, and radiotherapy and potentially chemotherapy and so on to achieve a cure. But I think you know it's, 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 it's taking someone who is completely functional in the community, leading what would be a, a, a good life and, and uh, you know uh, working hard in his job. And now you've got to tell him and his family that the proposed treatment, is quite long. It's protracted. It's going to need thirty sessions of radio radiation treatment. That involves coming into hospital every single day, battling the traffic, the parking hassles, and all of these things that where that people have to deal with. You know, uh, they can't work um, for that period of time, including a period of time afterwards. And that's assuming we achieve a cure. Um, you know, performing an operation has its complications: bleeding, infection, leakage of saliva breakdown of their flaps and all the surgical complications that can occur you have complications of radiotherapy that may occur then you've got the human side of things you know um, the interactions with this family yeah, whenever patients have a diagnosis of cancer they feel that they're staring at death's door um, and, and there are issues uh, regarding wills, regarding insurances, regarding future or current employment prospects um, Uh, housing you know so many things suddenly occur to them and become a part of this overall decision-making and that's quite hard because 15 minutes before the consultation the guy thought he had tonsillitis that wasn't getting better
0: Right. So So it sounds like you have the capacity to change people's lives for sure either through a cure a really successful operation but also that difficult aspect of breaking that news to them if it's if it's a condition that's rather difficult so that definitely sounds like a lot of responsibility and as, as well as that, though, you did mention that your lifestyle and your hours are controllable. But there are stories in some specialties of the pathway to getting there, the training pathway itself being an arduous journey. And when you get to the end, then you get to have your nice, cushy sort of hours. Is there anything like that in ENT?
1: Look, I think there is. Um, the training hours are long. I think the hardest bit about ENT is actually getting into the training program. Um, we happen to be probably the most competitive training program to get into, if not I would say easily one of the top three in terms of, of admission criteria, but I think a lot of that is a reflection of all the things we've discussed in this mm. interview. I think it's a fantastic specialty. Um, it gives you great insight into different things that can be achieved. It's got great developments in its basic sciences and its clinical sciences and people are aware of these things. and. The controlled hours or relatively controlled hours shall we say um, make it a very appealing specialty and so anything that appeals appeals not just to us but to a lot of people
0: yeah and after this interview the demand for ent is probably going to skyrocket up as well it's going to become even worse a
1: problem and so and so the statistics in ent are quite overwhelming in terms of um, in terms of uh, um, uh, the the ability to to enter and complete the specialty um, is is very difficult. So so you know, um, I sit on the board of training for ENT in in New South Wales. Um, on average, uh, in New South Wales, we admit between let's say on average six registrars into the training program per year. Um, Without meaning to be discouraging or or without meaning to sound difficult, because nothing's difficult if you really want to do something, you just have to know what to do and when to do what, but the the application rate, uh, your chances of getting in are less than 1 in 10, Mm. um, at least at the initial application stage. A lot of our application failures have got master's degrees, some have PhD degrees, Um, So it's not just about stacking the degrees. I think there's a lot of misperception in the medical student world that it's an endless paper chase, and it's not. Um, Yes, there are certain amount of research and certain amount of things that you have to do to show specialty interest, but that doesn't mean you go and enroll in a four-year PhD. I'm not discouraging people who want to do a PhD, but you should not be doing a PhD to get into a program. Okay, if you want to do a PhD to advance, your interest in research, it's a different issue. But a PhD for its utility, it's not, in my opinion, particularly useful. Um, So like we were talking about, the hardest bit of ENT is getting into the specialty, and it is the challenge. Um, But the rewards are that once you're successful through that period, your specialty training is actually quite enriching. Because one of the things that having a small number of registrars does is really throw you at the deep end. Um, you get great exposure see if we overcrowded our training program with a lot more registrars which sometimes there's a lot of pressure from the community to do it does no doubt dilute the training experience Um, because if you have a hundred operations that a registrar can do and you have three registrars now you suddenly have thirty to do that's going to make a difference in the final outcome when they come out and we I don't want to extend the training program any further than it already is. I think it's long enough um, now because most people go on to do post FRAC as training as well, um, and that extends it further. People have families. There is increasing amounts of women in our specialty, and we do need to bear that into mind, into, uh, you know, um, because uh, the, the needs might be slightly different.
0: Yeah, and how long is a training program typically?
1: So, so look. Um, The training program itself goes from what we call SET 1, which is Surgical Education and Training Program Year 1, to SET 5. So the acute part of ENT training itself is five years. Most of our trainees would have done anywhere between three to five years in the process of getting to that stage of SET 1. So that includes obviously intern and first year residency, which is compulsory for all uh, specialties. The third year in a lot of the uh, really focused candidates would be a senior resident year that's focused in ENT. Now a lot of the 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 joke among that uh, our junior doctors is that some of our SRMO posts in ENT are more competitive than getting into the actual program. <laughs> so I can tell you that that uh, you know uh, sitting on the interview panel at the SRMO post that we run, we had overwhelmingly we had sixty seven applications for two two positions. Now, some of those applications are quite random, some are genuine, um, but, but it's, I think it's a reflection that they realize that this is a stepping stone to the next step, and so um, there is a slight bottleneck at every stage, um, like anything else. But uh, um, uh, So if you count that, one to two years as a senior resident, so that brings it to four years. Assuming you are then successful in your examination, then you have to do what's called the college part one examination. Um, which uh, is now compulsory once again before getting on in the for a period of time it was done once you were on when I trained it was done before you were on it, it so these things are in a flux but broadly there is an entrance examination and then that will continue to be the case then you enter the specialty and you do a series of rotations which extend from between six months to one year which involves the main teaching hospitals in New South Wales um, and then there is a completion examination, um, which gives you your exit certificate, so to speak, and registers you in the country for specialty practice. But most people, and I'd say more and more nowadays, probably all, but certainly most, would not enter consultant practice straight away. There are various reasons. There's an increasing trend towards subspecialization in most specialties, so no one would actually practice otolaryngology in its truest most general sense people will choose an area head and neck ear surgery and obtain another one to two years of training which may be performed either locally or overseas Um, or people may work as a locum consultant for a few years and assess the situation regarding where they want to live where they want to work and find an appropriate best fit for their circumstance so if you add those up mathematics that brings you to a total of approximately
0: twelve years. Right. So it sounds
1: like MBBS. Right. A,
0: a mini marathon within the marathon that is medicine. Yes. Right. But anything that's worth doing and worth doing well is worth fighting hard for. So I suppose to get to those. Um, well, it
1: should be an enjoyable journey. It shouldn't absolutely. be a fight.
0: Absolutely. Yeah. But I suppose anything um, you know that is so coveted that can bring so much joy to to, to patients that's so rewarding. It makes sense that it's going to be um, you know. A lot of investment a lot of input and a lot of training to get there so I really like what you've said about um, you know making this specialty um, such that people get a good experience that they get the right number of surgeries that they yeah. get a lot of training that's excellent yeah now I've got a question for for those who are uh, still keen on ENT not deterred by the difficult pathway who are who are willing to to do what it takes now if it's not three PhDs and seven masters that will get you to where you want to go what is it that makes a great candidate?
1: I think there are cognitive and non-cognitive factors. Um, uh, most ENT surgeons are, you know, without being boastful, highly intelligent people. Um, they are they are very thoughtful people. Uh, they are very well qualified. They tend to have an academic bend. Um, uh, you would. You, would, you could consider them to be the thinking surgeons, they, they are slightly... It's not to say that other surgeons are not, um, and I don't mean it in that way, but I think, you know, in your interactions, and, and you can verify these for yourself, they, um, it's a different type of specialty, and so I think there are cognitive factors and non-cognitive factors, and I think research is important. Um, without having the minimum amount of research, which includes um, having some publications, having some presentations, some posters... Um, and so on, it will be difficult to get yourself in consideration. Now, these are easy to do and I think the problem that most students don't realize is how to go about doing them. So you need to approach whichever clinical school you're based in, you need to find the ENT department, you know, go and see them, go and talk to them, attend their clinics, introduce yourself to the consultants who are there, introduce yourself to the registrars who will be really able to guide you on the ground regarding You know what type of projects may be available. What type of publication or presentation opportunities that may be available. You know we often have more work available than we can do ourselves as a consultant. It is very difficult to juggle ten balls in the air at the same time. Um, So so I think um, availing those opportunities which are around, instead of focusing on how difficult the challenges are, are actually more important. We all went through these challenges. Um, and yeah. and and you know um, it was no different when I got on, um, uh, and so um, I think you know the fact that slight differences are that students nowadays are a little bit older than when what we were when we finished medicine. So I guess there was a little bit of a little bit less time pressure, but these things were still there. So make yourself known to a local ENT department. Try and get involved in some work. Try and get involved in some projects. Attend the clinics nowadays you know uh, I'm an academic at Sydney University and at Western Sydney University both the universities have uh, opportunities for summer vacation placements Uh, that includes summer vacation research projects summer vacation clinical attachments so the opportunities are there should you wish to avail them Um, and and so that allows you an exposure to the individuals and an an exposure to the work and gets the ball rolling if you're interested Um, and that builds up the cognitive side. The non-cognitive side uh, are whether you like it or not, personal relationships are important. You know, if we have to choose between 65 individuals, there is a natural gravitation and this is not unique to otolaryngology, this is not unique to medicine, this is unique to every part of life. Even if you're an investment banker, this is not unique. Personal relationships are important. When you have this massive plethora of people who are knocking on your door, you're more likely to choose someone that you have had some amount of exposure to, that you know is trustworthy, that you know is diligent, that you know is hardworking, that you know is going to look after the patients. And so, you know, these things um, help. And again, making yourself known to the department allows you to start these things. When you're a junior doctor, trying to get an ENT rotation is definitely required because that gives you exposure to the doctors, to the senior doctors, in a clinical sense. When they see that you're a diligent junior doctor, you, you know, you're hardworking, you're trustworthy, you're punctual, uh, you, you take every task to its end, you're reliable, those things are going to generate a far better reference for you. So these are the factors. You've got issue, you've got things you can correct in your CV, you've got things you can correct in your references, uh, and you've got to do well on the interview. Now that is something that is, is the third component of the selection. Um, and, and like most other things, when it comes to that stage, people will put in the hard
0: yards. Yeah, so it sounds like a lot of really great tips there. Go out and seek opportunity don't just mope around, be kind of likeable and competent and just go for what you want. So we'll end with this one question to you. Uh, If you had to travel back through time and give yourself one piece of advice, what would you tell yourself? Let's Um, say you as a student.
1: Yeah, I would tell students to keep their perspective broad. Um, I would advise them, despite the tendency towards early specialisation and despite the increasing rumours of how competitive things are, um, I would advise them to maintain a breadth of experience as much as possible. Try and experience life outside med school as well because I think it does make you a more balanced individual Um, and I think that comes across in your interactions with people, it comes across in your interaction with your senior doctors. Try and engage in some sort of extracurricular activity um, because what you find is that your academic marks become less and less important the further and further away you are from that from that time. But the other qualities that you engender through doing these things um, are what rises out um, and I think that's quite important. so I'd encourage students to keep a broad perspective and realise that that the balanced individuals are the ones who ultimately become, at least in the clinical world, outside of the research world, at least in the clinical world, far more likely to be successful. They're not necessarily uh, who would have been the most stellar academicians, but, but uh, certainly Good academics will always help you. It's never, put it this way, good academics are never going to be a disadvantage. It's about whether you can engender the other parts that are, that are important. So I think that's what I'd advise students. Um, I'd uh, also tell students that, funnily enough, the people who get offers in the competitive specialties, you will find have offers in more than one specialty. And the ones who have been who are unsuccessful are often unsuccessful in many. Now that clearly shows that it's not interest in a specialty. It's the it's the individual's qualities, and that includes the cognitive qualities and the non-cognitive qualities that actually shine through. Um, you know, uh, so so that's what I tell them to do: get a breadth of experience. But yes, if if we are on your mind, if our specialties are on your mind, make yourselves known.
0: Excellent. So be a great person and be a whole, well-rounded person. Well, thank you very much for your time and wisdom, Dr. Fruk. It's been excellent. Pleasure. We've learnt so much about the training pathway, what this specialty involves, and we look forward to seeing you all in the next episode.